When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. How you doing, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. And also Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? I'm good, too. Thank you, Andrew. Good. So glad to hear. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, trumpet, flugelhorn player, and songwriter from the legendary band Chicago, Lee Lockname. The legendary rock and roll band with horns, Chicago, came in as the highest charting American band in Billboard magazine's top 125 artists of all time. They are the first American rock band to chart top 40 albums in six consecutive decades. I read that this morning. And wow. I was like, holy <laughs> hairdo, that's crazy. Right. Chicago recently received the Recording Academy's Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys and were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as mentioned earlier, back in 2016. Their first album, Chicago Transit Authority, was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2014. They have managed to fuse pop, rock, and jazz throughout their illustrious career and proven themselves time and time again, both on record and in concert. The 2021 expanded album, a whopping 16-CD collection, think about the artwork for that, Q. <laughs> yeah. Chicago at Carnegie Hall Complete celebrates the 50th anniversary from the band's eight-night stand in 1971, of which we'll get into a little later because Lee was a driving force behind that project. So please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Lee Lochnane. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Nice to see you guys. We're so glad you're here, Lee. I mean, Chicago, the band, 
an American institution, a national treasure. I mean, just the statistics alone, 37 uh, albums, 100 million records sold. Wow. And We're working on the 38th album right now. God bless you, man. Keep it up. Yeah. With that very first record, the Chicago Transit Authority record, which I bought when it came out, I was 10. Everybody I knew had that record. You guys mixed, and I think Andy had already said this, but I thought you mixed pop. There was hard rock on there with Terry's guitar stuff, jazz, soul, definitely, and some classical slash symphonic influence, too. And you guys became one of our country's premier acts and remain so all these years later. That's really astounding and inspiring to me. I'd like us to go back to the beginning of all this stuff. When you followed in your father's footsteps and began playing trumpet when you were 11. In fact, your father's trumpet, I believe. I did. I used his old mark. How cool is that? He passed yeah. it down. And by the time you graduated high school, you knew music was your calling. Can you tell us a little bit about that high school, the St. Mel High School, where they offered let's say, musical opportunities that most teenagers didn't get back then and certainly wouldn't be getting now. It was definitely not the closest high school to my home. I had to take three buses just to get to high school every day. Uh, Tom Fabish was the band director, and he had actually taught my father back when he was in school. So, you know, it was sort of passed down, and this guy was was very famous in the school uh departments of various high schools in in uh, Chicago and uh, very well known. I, I got into this the Catholic Youth Organization band as well. And um, uh, that was the start of something that uh, once I got into it, I, no one could stop me from doing it anymore. I wanted to do it for a living. And, and my dad, actually, ironically, he got me started, but he wanted, he tried to talk me out of doing it for a living. Oh, he did. Yeah, he didn't think that there was going to be a future in it. You know, how how many people make it? He didn't make it. You know, he was he was the uh, band director in the Army Air Force because uh, they were combined at the time in the forties. Okay, and uh, he was a band director, and he saw all of these musicians come through using these weird, you know, smoking this stuff and drinking and and going AWOL on the weekends to go play gigs. So he didn't want me to, he wanted me to play an instrument to have that sort of background, but he didn't want me to really do it for as a professional. Like most parents, you know, they're, they're leery about the whole musical thing. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. They want to take care of you. You're but, right. You know, once, once I started doing it and, you know, trying to talk me out of it was pretty difficult because it, in fact it was impossible. And I ended up having to move out of the house because I wasn't going to stop. What parent doesn't believe that anybody who aspires to be a musician is going to make it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. One hit wonder. Yeah, that's right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so, but you had a lot of opportunities to play. You were playing symphonic music and there was a jazz band and that, right? I mean, you had yeah. th those kind of things that... I was playing mainly in the concert bands and then, you know, I would play in the, the band uh, uh, playing for the... Uh, basketball games, sure. football games, and da -da 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 -da, pet, pet all of band. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. And but once we got out on the street and started marching, they could never get me to raise my legs enough. And I, you know, I would say, "Listen, <laughs> do you want the notes or do you want my knees up?" I don't blame you. And, uh, they took the notes. There you go. <laughs> I was a snare drummer doing the same thing in high school, and it was like, man, I'm not yeah. going to lift my leg. I got to drag this exactly. drum around. And so only by the reviewing stand. That's when you had to do it. You know. Yeah. When you when 
everyone you were getting you judged. Get, uh, you were being judged, right. and you would definitely be judged harshly if you didn't raise right. your legs and they lost because of you. Yeah, contest time. <laughs> it was time to go ahead and okay, we'll do it today for five minutes. Here. That's right, exactly. <laughs> That's great. I did my share of da 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 on on Oregon for hockey games, having grown up in oh, yeah. Canada. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, check him into the boards, eh? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> So how did you meet the rest of the guys in the band? It was around this time or right after, right after high school, correct? I graduated high school and went to DePaul University. And uh, uh, it was either when I was a senior in high school or just as I had gone into uh, uh, college, uh, I met Terry and, and Walt. They had a band called The Missing Links. And uh, I would go see them play at some of their, their gigs. And then they asked me to start coming to sit in with them. So some of their, their gigs in town, I would go sit in and there'd be, you know, once in a while, there'd be a fight that <laughs> during the course of one of our sets. And, you know, we'd keep try to keep playing the music as, as the fight is <laughs> Don't want to draw attention to yourself at that point. Right. <laughs> right. Hey, we're still up here, you know, but you know, nobody cared. So and, uh, amazingly enough, no one got really uh, hurt badly, but there was, you know, just some of the feuding for the different gangs. Rough place, obviously. Wow. It, it, yeah. It's, uh, as you know, a lot rougher now than it was back then. Mm. But, uh, you know, we, we got to know each other pretty well. We had a lot of fun playing together. And when that band broke up, Walt wanted to form a band and take it to Vegas. Okay. And, uh, you know, wear the suits, do some steps and, you know, be a show band. And uh, as you know, we didn't turn really into a show band. We, no. <laughs> we were more of just a, a musical entity that loved playing songs together. So that's how it turned out. When did you find the name Chicago and have your first ensemble as far as the, the membership goes? that we would know as the band Chicago. Right. Well, when we started the band, there were six of us. Okay. Me, Terry, Danny. Danny Serafin, great drummer. Danny Serafin. Uh, who else? Walt, Walt and, and Jimmy. That's the six of us. Okay. And we started as uh, the music foundation. We took pictures with our suits on in the foundation of a, a building a, you know, a building going up. We were <laughs> in like these deep holes holding on the shovels and stuff. <laughs> and then uh, the, the music foundation probably lasted a week or two. And then we went to um, see what was the next name? Music foundation. Then the big thing, the big uh, thing. Yeah. We had a, a guy come in and start managing and we, we were uh, playing some clubs around the area and they, we called ourselves the big thing. And amazingly enough, there was a club in Rockford, Illinois, who thought that that was too, a bit too phallic. So they called us the Seven Sounds. We, we went and played. So who the hell are these guys? Seven Sounds. That was us. Yeah. They weren't going to let you put the big thing up on their marquee. The big thing, right. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> That's great. Did you guys have any of the songs that would finally come out on your on your first record at that point? Not really. We were still playing. You know, there was horns in a lot of music, but it was mostly R&B stuff. Sure. And mostly background, you know, that, 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 it wasn't really lyrical type stuff for the horns to play. Right. So when, and when we met Robert, he had a book of 50 original songs. 
Wow. So we started playing a couple of those songs at, at uh, our clubs, our <laughs> club gigs, and the owners didn't like that at all. We got fired a couple of times for playing original stuff, yeah. We're playing original stuff rather than rather than top forty. Yeah, you know, they sure. were top forty, and, and that was it. They just wanted top forty. You don't play top forty. Get ready. <laughs> but you kept you kept trying to you kept sneaking them in though, right? We did keep sneaking them in, so we got fired a few times. Well, in fact, we we got upset. One guy, uh, Zoe Maholius, uh, he owned a club, and I think he owned the whole block actually in Milwaukee, and. Uh, uh, he asked us to play. He he would sort of tell us what songs to play. He'd feel out the room and see how it's supposed to be going. He he asked us to play a belly rubber, which is a, a, some sort of ballad, right? Right. Uh, so we I played, remember that uh, term. <laughs> yeah, belly <laughs> rubber. Belly. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So we played uh, uh, Frank Zappa tune. Um, <laughs> uh, how do I? How, how could I be such a fool? And that got us fired that night. And we went, okay, we went right across the street. The cream was playing at a place called The Scene, right across the street from the club. And we went in there. <laughs> in fact, we, we took acid that night and went in. And that would have been a trip, literally. Oh, it wow. was a trip. Yeah. Actually, we, unfortunately, we saw that they didn't really like each other at that point. And I don't know how oh. long they had been together, but it was at a point where you could see that it wasn't really jelly, especially on acid. It's like... I understand life. <laughs> yeah, right. There was animosity, though, that you guys could sense. Yes, I, me for sure. I could sense their animosity. Those guys didn't get along well at all there towards the end, I guess. Right. Wow, what a what a story. What there. year was that? That was 67. Oh, okay. Probably later 67, maybe? Later 67, yeah. yeah. That was around the, the time of the riots, because we were okay. playing... We were playing when the uh, six, 68 riots uh, started happening. That was that we played a gig in Milwaukee and we had to sort of. Uh, during the convention, uh, the Democratic during convention. During the convention and we had a gig at the, at the attic, which was the club that we got fired from and then went to the scene across the street. Okay. But uh, uh, we had to like escape the attic one night because the riots were going on. We got in our cars and just went, we're out of here. I mean, didn't stop for anybody. Yeah. Just kept going. Forgive my ignorance, but I mean, I know the band just from listening to recordings and seeing you only on YouTube and in, in recorded versions, but there's lots of great harmonies in the band. Are you amongst those singers? Or are you too busy on home? Uh, when, I, when I am not playing, yes, I'd love to uh, harmonize with the boys. Yeah. I bet. Now, I'm looking at a list of, of Lee Lochnane, um compositions, and it, it's listing if you... It's like one hand, right? Oh, no. It's, but it, it lists if you leave me now. And I thought, oh, my God, that is, without question, one of the most inspirational and, and famous ballads of all time. Right. I did not write that. Is that what it is? Is it saying that I wrote that? Well, it's listed under your name. Yeah, yeah. So Interesting. Well, I was, I was there. <laughs> well, don't tell anybody that you're on, if you're getting residuals from it. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what, it, I have not gotten residuals, but uh, and in another way I have, because the band, that was our first international right. hit. It yeah. was oh, unbelievable okay. what that did. No and, question. You know, ironically, the guys in the band that were the major writers didn't like it because it was a different avenue for us. Sure was. That we hadn't been on sure. before. And uh, they didn't want to go down the ballad 
trail, even though we'd had uh, just you and me already and a number of other, you know, big hits. But your first song, that Call On Me, that was a top mm-hmm. 10 hit. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. And, you know, if that was the first song you wrote, which I think I read, how many people could claim that the very first song they wrote was a top 10 hit? So tell us about that. Well, I took it into the, <laughs> I took it in and said, I have a song here. <laughs> <laughs> you tiptoed in, you know, like walking yeah. backwards. Walking on eggshells. <laughs> These guys are major songwriters already. This was like our seventh album. That's intimidating. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was definitely intimidating. And and even after we recorded it, I was still intimidated. <laughs> but it became a hit. Uh, you know, I think it was number six on the, on the Billboard. Yeah, uh, I remember hearing it. 100 yeah. or top 40 or whatever it was. Yeah. And uh, the, it made the Drake stations, you know. We've played forever. Did you pre-record the demo for them, or did you walk in and, and play it for them live? I had I had some sort of cockamamie tape, I think I played for them. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I made reference at the top of the show about the new project, new old project, and I guess in a way you've been working on and putting together the Carnegie Hall project from 50 years ago. Take us back to 1971 and, and the recording of these shows and and. And just tell us that story and obviously lead up to the, to the release of the, uh, the big. We, we had three albums at the time. And uh, w- when we got to Carnegie Hall, we were still learning some new songs. That, uh, um, a song for Richard and his friends. Was that on the third album? I, I don't think so. I think it was on the think so. fifth album. I think, it was, I think it came on the, the fifth album, but we were just learning it during those eight shows. And so we do it during the course of the eight shows. We, you, you're going to hear a song for Richard and his friend. That's Richard Nixon, right. of course. And, and you're going to hear that uh, probably five times out of the eight shows, if, if not more. I mean, I remember editing that song. Man, we got to do another one of these. But I remember it sounding really good because there was jazz influences in there. Terry played a great solo. Uh, you know, it was it was at the point where we wanted to be out of Vietnam. So, you know, the, the, it's, yeah. it opens up with with uh, Robert playing as, as though he's playing, you know, using the machine guns. guns. I personally can't wait to can't wait to hear it. I mean, I I've worked on a lot of you guys' shows over the years and seen you, and, and it's always such a pleasure to see you guys in concert. But I think Hugh can attest to this a little bit because he's been working the last several years on these anniversary reissues for Rush where he's going in and recreating the artwork. And there's just a huge palette, I think, for for classic rock fans to go back. And, you know, if you would have said 10, 15 years ago, oh, Chicago is going to put out a 16 CD set, you would be like, oh, my gosh, that's humongous. Whereas now it's like it makes sense because there's the appetite and the fan base is there. Right. Bands like a Rush, well, like a so. Chicago or whatever. We will find out soon enough. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you and I have talked about this several times, it, it, mainly when we're talking about we're talking about the Rush project. But it, Rush isn't the only band, clearly, that, that's doing this. It's just I think it's an interesting topic. And I think that it's there's definitely an appetite out there for them. There's more and more bands of your echelon, too, that are offering more lavish and extravagant projects even for their studio albums um i'm working with dream theater right now for instance and normally it takes a 40th anniversary box set to, to warrant doing the box and the big offering but right. i'm seeing right. more people nesting 
LP vinyl LP 200 gram um, you know special even remixed sometimes re re remastered um, along with CD Blu-ray footage never seen before that sort of thing seems to be really popular now too yeah I mean the last the Beatles things you know that Sergeant Pepper came out and yeah four years ago and then the White Album and then abbey road and i bought all those box sets it's like wow kid in the candy store big book listen i'm sure you guys have organized i'm sure you get a, when you get this box set there's a lot of stuff to it i would oh yeah there's a lot of stuff to it i haven't seen it all yet because uh warner rhino is putting it all together perfect uh, mike come over and and there's a whole crew of people putting stuff together there, there would have it. to be but they are still allowing us to be uh involved with it because we don't actually own it anymore we sold it to them because we found out when we did buy our stuff back and started Chicago Records, we found out that we're pretty good musicians for, uh, you know, record company executives. So it wasn't really our calling, you know. Gotcha. But it was better that we sell, you know, sold it to someone else who could actually go out and sell this stuff. Right. The one thing your band did that was so contrary to what, I mean, as a selfish art director myself, I dread bands that have big uh, intrusive logos because I'm, <laughs> I, 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 which is exactly <laughs> what I am known for. You might as well have it right on my face. No, forehead. no, but <laughs> I spent a career, I spent a career building, building concepts that would then be titled with less less um, less uh, in intrusive, less invasive uh, text. Your band broke that mold by actually making your artwork and your logo, yeah. you know, synonymous. Um, so I would, that's I would. Right. Have, you had to steal it from Coca Cola. Right? Well, that's what I heard. I, I, I read a little <laughs> something about your art. John Berg, I think, did that. John Berg, yes, exactly. Now, but what, you know, the challenge now, though, because you've done polished stainless, tie-dye, carved wood, chocolate, um, you've done so many incarnations of Chicago. I imagine doing a box set is a challenge for today's art director to find any element that they can work with. I think what they did was they used the original package, that, that ivory package with the Chicago logo on oh, Okay, cool. And how many records were in the original one? Four. Four, that's right. And it came down to really one show. Okay. Yeah. So, this is eight shows, two CDs per show. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I, I've heard a few records, the Humble Pie, Live at the Fillmore, where, where they did the multiple nights, and Jimi Hendrix, same thing, the Band of Gypsies. It's neat to hear the different versions, because, you know, the band's not going to sound the same every night. We always thought as a band, that the album wasn't good. We mm. were shocked that it sold a million copies. Really? I, I'm telling you, because we were, we're, I remember going out the first night and we screwed up the first song someday, so it wasn't on the album. It is now on the album because 49 years later, you can fix stuff that you couldn't do before. Yeah, that's true. We, we started the song out, doom, 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 boom. Danny comes in on two. Peter comes in and does a on one. Oh. So one and two, and Robert forgot to sing the first lines because he was probably freaked out. Oh my God, we're going to have to stop. <laughs> we kept going, played the whole song. 49 years later, we fixed wow. it. It sounds like we did it flawlessly. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That's great. So Lee, one thing I came across when I was uh, researching a little bit uh, prior to talking to you, which I never knew, was you guys in 1979, you guys appeared on the Bee Gees record, um, Spirits Having yes. Flown, and it played on a couple songs, including Too Much Heaven. 
Can you tell us that story? Yeah, Walt and I played that uh, intro, and that was the only part of the song we played on. Okay. Great song to be on, though, huh? Yeah, oh, yeah. No question. There's probably a check in your mailbox right behind you right now or that song, I would guess. There is. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of rolls in every Every few Friday. Months. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. You know, when you guys were coming up, at the time in the late 60s, there were some other horn bands. Blood, Sweat, and Tears were around. I saw Chase right before their plane crash. My mom took me to see that band in 71. Get It On was on the radio. What do you think set you guys apart to make you the longevity and the and just to have lasted so much longer than acts like that? I think we were we were always an organic band, if there is such a thing. We just we grew up when we got together, we played, you know, top forty songs and then when we started writing, we didn't we didn't say we should put uh jazz influences in we should put this in we just wrote songs yeah and those were the influences that that shone through right through within the song and i think that has set us apart from from anybody else because usually people get together and they try a formula of some exactly sort. and we weren't formulaic at all speaking of being organic um because horns are so specific um in terms of creating the charts for horns. Do you guys actually play like you imagine the BG singing together? Do you ever just kind of play and just know where to go? Do you jam or do you always have someone charting it? Uh, Jimmy chart, Jimmy did the, the charts and uh, very seldom did we try to do a, an arrangement that was, unless it was a blues tune and then you can pretty much come up with licks behind the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you want to do something lyrical that is important, to the song as as a lead vocal yeah you have to get some some time and effort into it and right. make it flow yeah yeah understood have you ever have you ever shared the stage with another you know for lack of a better term horn band a horn driven band that earth wind and fire oh wow good wow we've, we've played four or five tours with earth wind and fire oh yeah great yeah. it was a Every time we we play, it was, it, and then we would we would play. We would open the show, both bands together, twenty one guys on stage playing nice. three songs, and then we did an encore together at mm -hmm. the end. And each one of us in between would play. Earth, Wind, and Fire would play a set, and then we'd play a set, and then we get together at the end. Fabulous! It was really a lot of fun. I saw that show a few times. I'd love to see that. Yeah, it's kind wow. of that. That show is a mind blow. Which I actually I had that on my list is an amazing show to see. But you guys have have done a similar type of thing, like with Ario Speedwagon and others. Yes, Ario. We played with them as well. It was, each one of them was fun. Doobie Brothers. Right. We did it with. Great. Yeah, and a uh, couple others. Yeah, I love seeing, I always love those shows because it's one thing to have a special guest come out and play with the band. I mean, that's not unheard of, obviously, but the way that you guys right. have done it, where it's been a full integration of both bands and yes. the Earth, Wind and Fire one is really tough to beat because it's it's like, it's an, it's so amazing with all, there's just so many people on stage together, yeah. but man, it's. You got to know what you're doing or somebody's going to fall off yeah, the okay. stage. <laughs> Somebody gets tackled mm -hmm. on the way. Yeah, I'm sure you guys figured that out. Yeah, pretty well before. You yeah, know. yeah, we had to do that. Yeah, we always like to talk about the live side of stuff as it pertains to the band that you're in, but we always like to also ask, what was the first show or shows that you went to as a fan or have been to over the years that really just kind of you know you, you know, are sticking your mind. 
The one that sticks in my mind the most is the the, uh, the Rascals. Oh, great. Yeah. Great and, band. Uh, what, what was the drummer's name? Dino Dinelli. Dino Dinelli. Dino, killer drummer. In between the twirling, throwing the stick up, and he never missed a beat, and he always caught the stick. It was like, it was mesmerizing to be, to watch that, and I loved those guys at the time. That was a lot of fun. It wasn't the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show then. No, it was not. I didn't like the Beatles initially. It, it, you know, it didn't grab me the way it did everyone else. Really? As it went through. I mean, obviously, the Beatles are my favorite. Mm-hmm. But the the initial stuff was pretty easy to play and yeah. sing and all of that stuff. But, they, you know, they're... The Beatles. Yeah. So you were more soul-influenced soul and jazz-influenced in your very early times, probably, yeah. Now, where was that show at, the, the Rascal show that you referenced? That was uh, near the Stockyards, down in uh, somewhere near Roosevelt Road. I forget what the actual name of the venue was. How big was the audience? It was probably five, 6,000. Oh, uh, cool. And they just had the knickers on when you saw them? They did. They did. <laughs> hey, way to sell the band, right? You're not going to forget that. Young Rascals. They were still the young They were rascals. the young rascals. That's right. That's right. You're not going to forget that outfit. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say this. When I was in high school, 10th through 12th grade, I was in the band and the jazz band and everything. The only drummer that they really had for to play the drum set. And... You know, sometimes we'd get stuck playing sing, 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 or do, 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 or, you know, something that we didn't really have. Oh, yeah. We didn't care about. We didn't want to hear we it. We a whole album. We didn't want it. <laughs> well, we didn't want to know that stuff when, when, you know, when you're 15 years old. You know, I was listening to right. rock and roll. But what we did play and what I found, I find interesting now is that we played a ton of Chicago stuff. Really? A ton of it. Because I don't know who was publishing your tunes for high school jazz bands and pet bands okay carl fisher or hal leonard or somebody um hal leonard. both of them yeah. both probably which which i work for, i do a lot of publishing stuff on the side and, and play on some of those sessions but back then I, I didn't know who it was but thank you very much for writing cool songs that we could play <laughs> in jazz bands so we didn't have to play that corny stuff from the 1940s that yeah. <laughs> we weren't the least bit interested in at the time well when we did our big band album and we went back and researched what songs we were going to arrange and like update them yeah. to today rather than rather than try to mimic them from the 40s yeah. and 30s. Uh, uh, it was really cool seeing how they constructed that music back then. Right. Mm-hmm. It was really a learning experience for us. Yeah, some pretty amazing arrangements. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I appreciated it later when I got in college and I actually, the players were better and we understood and we go, okay, not everything's boom, bap, boom, boom, bap. Right. And the Beatles actually incorporated the six. You know, there were no six in rock and roll. There was a hell of a lot of six in big band jazz. Yeah. Yeah. I remember my son coming to me and I think he was in junior high. He's playing the drums in the band. He asked me, he's like, dad, have you ever heard this this song before? And he showed me the sheet music. It was 25 or six to four. I was like, yeah, I played that when I was in junior high band. So yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's interesting though. I didn't really have the thought and and Dane and I were talking to it earlier, but it's like that song is, is, um, in a lot of ways, especially for band kids, is a big entry into rock and roll, I think, just in general. I mean, how many times you hear that song as part of pep bands during college basketball breakaways and all that stuff? That song is always being played, and band, and it's just one of those things, right? So, pretty cool. And a new generation discovers the music that they 
you know, they're hearing it that way if they're not listening to classic rock or right. whatever. You know, it's still getting to the to the youngsters that way. So that's fabulous. Yep. It's great. We're, we are very fortunate to be able to do still today what we started when we were 20s, in our 20s, early 20s. Yeah, absolutely. No question. We're still playing with the 20-year-olds. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So when you guys cut Wishing You Were Here, the Beach Boys are singing. Is Carl Wilson or at least a couple of the Beach Boys are singing on that? Oh, yeah. Do you have recollections of that session? or? or- I wasn't there when they were actually doing those vocals, uh, but but that was, a, that was a great song. We did it up at, at uh, Caribou Ranch. That's what I was getting ready to say. had just signed them. Yeah. Oh, okay. And he was their manager. That's why that came together. And and Satara had always been a Beach Boy fan, mm-hmm. so he uh, asked if they would be if they would be interested in singing on a song. That's cool. But sure is beautiful. I listened to that one again the other day and thought, wow, what a yeah, what a fantastic fun. composition. As you know, the brass doesn't come in until the like uh, the right. We played uh, eight bars. Yep. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that's all the song needed. I mean, that's what's beautiful about the arrangements that you guys do. That That's what was needed. There wasn't extra stuff, gratuitous stuff that didn't need to be there. You guys have always organized your songs like that. You know, back then, you only had a certain number of tracks. So everything that went on the record had to move the record along or erase it. You, this that same concept still works today, even though there's you can do a million tracks over and over again and just sort of mix them all together. Right. If something doesn't work and move the song along, get rid of it. Yeah. Good point. You know, it'll just take up space. It'll take up audio space that you don't need to to uh, get in the way of. Less is more. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't mention this story to you, Lee. So we were, for the podcast, we were talking to a guy named Roger Joseph Manning Jr. He was in a band called Jellyfish, and he's actually been a sideman with Beck for 20, 25 years or some incredible musician, keyboard player, whatnot. It's good. You should check it out and listen to it. But he talks about you guys and that. He's got a funny story from it. I don't know if you guys recall this story when he was telling us, but he had joined Columbia House you know, back in the day when you could, you know, get your 16 CD for a penny in the mail. And he had ordered like one Chicago record and they screwed the order up and he was supposed to get a bunch of Kiss records, but instead he got like a bunch of Chicago records. <laughs> but his point, and it was a funny story, but his point was that he was so glad that he did because he ended up becoming a huge Chicago fan because of it. And, you know, and those songs and kind of helped lay a foundation for him, but it was just kind of interesting. I thought I'd share that. Thank you. It, it, when when parents would bring their kids to our shows because they enjoyed the music enough where they figured that the kids might like it too. And the kids would come in and going, I don't know. By the time they left, they were fans too. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Because you guys rock. It was it's cool to, to see it that that the the same music can uh resonate with so many yeah. people different different age groups it's, yeah it's cool because you have no idea when you're writing you're just writing a song you know when you had your different eras i mean obviously in the 80s there was the, the big ballads and stuff like that and the one thing I, I i forgot that i read that you were actually the you got to play the policeman in the one video or sheriff or whatever for the stay of the night video i think it was motorcycle cop yeah and i was also i was also the pig man in uh the the movie electric light oh movie. really okay hmm. nice yeah, I have a line. Do you remember the line? Yes. 
I have inf- I have some information for you. You're standing in picture. <laughs> <laughs> you can use that line every okay. day, right? <laughs> That's right? Oh yeah, good stuff, man. When does this uh, the new project? When does it hit the stores? I am not exactly sure. Okay, I'd have to check with uh, with uh, Mike Engstrom at Rhino. But soon, soon, yeah. So it's I think maybe September. Okay, something like that. Well, we're sure, looking forward to that. So did you have the multi-tracks from the concert? Yes. Well, what a oh, blessing. Yeah. We, had, we had 41 reels of tape. Oh, my God. Wow. And the first, the first month or two months was just taking each reel, which was converted to, converted to uh, digital, taking each reel. And Tim Jessup, the, the engineer, he was taking 60-cycle hum out, and then he would go to the next level of hum and take all of these hums out so you could actually hear the, that there's music on these tapes, right? You know, and then we went just one step at a time um, through the layers to get to the point where you could actually take a trumpet and a saxophone and a trombone and move it up in the mix without the whole Carnegie Hall coming with it. Right. It was it was time consuming and well worth it. Painstaking, yeah. but yeah, but still, yeah, it was great. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. And I got to use my, my uh, SSL console at the same time. Nice. Classic yeah. consoles. And, it, and I can actually touch it myself. They wouldn't let me touch them before. <laughs> well, if it's yours, by golly, they're not going to stop you, are they? <laughs> you have that in your home studio? Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Did you guys have to bake the tapes? Usually you have to go through some process before the, they'll peel they off. They might have had to bake the tapes before they made them digital. So when you were messing with them, they were already been digitized. They weren't on the tape itself. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's another whole process that's painstaking. When we first got the Masters and, and purchased the master or got the Masters back from Columbia, yeah. we had to bake the tapes to to, re, to just to figure out what was on them because sure. we were recording at, you know, between, the, we were like the uh, uh, six to six, six at night to six in the morning shift, right? Okay. <laughs> And and uh, I think Carney, I, I think uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel had the whole day booked, ah. and we had to come in after they were done. And uh, uh, but but uh, it, it was it was fun back then, re- recording all night and then getting up and th- that first album was pretty cool. Yeah, when you're young, it's easy to do that stuff back then. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. So all the great shows over the years of your career in Chicago, what are there certain shows or tours or opportunities uh, that kind of stick out in your mind? I remember coming out and having the, the you know, the matches uh, for uh, Jimi Hendrix shows, actually. And then they, they saw that it was us and the matches would go off. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Oh, they're not. Jimmy's not coming on right away. And then, you know, and then as we had our, our foot in the door and we started making it, those, those uh, lights were for us. So who in your band, um, was there a point person who kind of liaised with the art directors or the, the label with respect to these reincarnate Chicago logos that were? I think management did it more than any of us. So you didn't? You, Robert may have been involved because of his, you know, the, the songs that he was writing at the time. I see. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. But I think it was more Gersio that, that did that. Were you ever influenced yourself as a as a, a buyer, as, as someone who would go into a record store? Would records speak to you from the shelf as being interesting just by virtue of their 
their covers or were you just all about the mu music? I was pretty much about the music, but you know, the, the intent and the meaning of the album would, would come through because of the cover. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, sure. You know, they did a lot of selling, those those covers. Yeah. Lee, I've got a question for you that I was thinking about when I was going back and listening to you, through you guys' catalog. And knowing that, and I've seen the, the documentary about Chicago. and You're wondering why I'm still alive, right? <laughs> well, no. Uh, why are any of us still alive? Anyway, but uh, you've sang occasional lead vocals, you know, throughout you guys' history. But i, I got to ask, mm -hmm. when you sing Color My World live, these days, one of Terry Cass' signature vocals back in the day. I mean, what kind of emotional impact does that have on you? I, you know, as a singer, I'm just trying to get it right. To get the notes right. And, yeah, so it's not, you know, I feel like uh, uh, like probably Ringo felt when he was saying, you know, would you stand up and walk out on me? Yeah, <laughs> you <know>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just try to do the best job I can sure. and put as, as much emotion into it as, as I can. And it seems to be working because the texture of my voice is closer to Terry's. It, it does than work. I think anybody else in the band? Yeah. Well, Terry was such an important part of the original. Uh, oh my God! Yeah. He was. Uh, yeah, he sang. I, I think he smoked two joints and went out and sang "Color My World." So that's how he got that her in his voice. Mm. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we were all crying when he when he did it. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, that's the one, Terry. <laughs> Boy, it sure was, man. Yeah. What a what a beautiful what a beautiful song. Absolutely. One of my yeah. favorites of all time. Classic song. Well, this has been great, Lee. We really appreciate the time and walking down memory lane all and right. excited to hear the uh, the new project uh, when it comes out. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I've been I've been listening to it all the way. We you know, doing the mixes and then sending it to mastering. Send it the mastering comes back to us and then you listen again. So I've listened to the eight shows probably uh ten times a piece. Wow. And then, and then we send it off to, to Rhino, and they send it for test pressings, and then those come back, and we listen to that. That's what you did in 2020. You, you've been listening to the Carnegie Hall no shows. No kidding. That's all you've had time to do. It sounds like that's a lot of... Our first three albums. Yeah. Over. Over and over. <laughs> that's all right. That's awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. thought I would get tired of it, but it was fun yeah. to do. Yeah. You, you find yourself listening to this stuff going... Wow. We should do this for a living. Yeah, we were pretty dark. <laughs> well, we were mistaken thinking that it didn't sound good. You were wrong. See? Yeah. Awesome. Time tells the tale. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us on the Music Buzz. We really appreciate your time and best wishes for you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Best of luck, Lee. Great talking to you, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. God bless. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.